Sometimes on this journey, I get lost in my mistakes. What looks to me like weakness is a canvas for his strength. My story isn't over, my story's just begun. Failure won't define me, cause that's what my father does. No failure won't define me, cause that's what my father does.
Amen. Thank you. We want to welcome you to East Hills of Baptist Church this morning. I want to thank everyone who prayed for me last week. If you want to know how to lose 10 pounds in about three days, you just see me after this church service, and I'll share that with you. Uh, I want to mention just a couple of things. This morning, next Sunday night in the gym around 5 p.m., we'll have the shoebox party. We have 1,000 Samaritan's Purse shoeboxes to fill, so if you'd like to take part in that, that will take place of our Sunday night services. And speaking of Sunday night services... Um, and I, we'll, we'll mention this when we get closer to time, but starting in January, which will be January the 2nd, instead of having worship service, we're going to start having Bible studies on Sunday night. And we'll, um, we'll uh, mention more of that as we get closer to time, and that's recommended by the deacons. Also tonight, we have the great privilege of ordaining Scott Houston. So if you will, uh, remember Scott and Heather and their family in your prayers. We want to thank Scott for serving. I want to thank all our deacons who serve Tonight, if you'll notice in your bulletin, I'll be preaching on the high calling of a deacon. And I really appreciate those men. I've been serving here since 2002. And since that time, even as an associate pastor, I was privileged to be able to sit in on deacons meetings. And um, I just, I don't dread deacons meetings. I've never have. Uh, you hear horror stories of other churches about deacons. But we're so blessed. And you're so blessed to have the men that we have serve. And thank you. Uh, for keeping him and them in prayer. And I want to, once again, want to welcome you to East Hills of Baptist Church, whether you're in here or in the parking lot or watching online. Uh, we want to welcome you to East Hills of Baptist Church service this morning. If you will stand with me, I'm going to pray, and then our praise team is going to us, lead us in worship. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. We want to thank you, Lord, that we can uh, come to church. Father, we want to thank you, Father, for your grace that saved us, your mercy, Lord, your mercies that are new every morning. Father, we want to thank you for how you've blessed us. Lord, individually and as a congregation, Lord, we are a family. Father, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray for all the churches in Alexander County meeting this morning. I pray that you would bless them, that your word uh, would be preached, and that your name would be exalted. Lord, we pray for souls to be saved. Father, we pray for uh, those that are hurting, Lord, to be healed. We pray for those that are uh, Lord, maybe walking a guilty distance away from you. Lord, draw them back. Lord, this morning as we talk about repentance, Lord, this, this psalm this morning applies to all of us. At one point in time in our life, we've all been where David has been. Maybe not to that degree, but Lord, we've all needed to pray the prayer that he has prayed. So Father, I pray that you'd bless your word this morning. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we do, all that's sung, all that's prayed, and all that's preached. Father, we'll thank you and praise you for it, and we love you today. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said together, amen. You sing with us this morning.
much. Uh, if you'll look in your bulletin, you probably see in there that this is the week of prayer for the Baptist Children's Home. So if you will, we would I like to say this too. If you'd like to give, that's one way you can give. There's an envelope in there and you can give. Hopefully sometime in the future we'll have a representative from the Baptist Children's Home who can come on a Sunday morning and kind of present what they do. If you're not f familiar with it, you can Google that and go online and look at all the great things that they're doing. We've actually had have had students from our area go and get some really good help. So there's a lot of families that the Baptist Children's Home has helped even here in Alexander County. Uh, this is the time of prayer uh, that you can come down by yourself. You can come down with your family. You can pray about anything that you want to. I would encourage you to pray for the Baptist Children's Home. If you'll notice in your bulletin, there are so many prayer requests in there. You can pray for health. You can pray for healing. You can pray spiritually. Uh, for yourself, I would encourage you to pray for me and for this service this morning. So as the praise team leads us in this time of worship, if you'll meet me here at the altar, Mark's going to pray for us as you come down this morning. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for walking with us. Thank you that you're an ever-present God and you care for all of our needs according to your riches, which are many. And Father, we love you this morning. And Father, you know the needs on this altar. God, you know the needs in the hearts and the lives of your people. And we pray that you'd answer them according to your will and your purpose in your plan 
And Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you in worship. We thank you for who you are, our Father, our Savior, sovereign, loving, kind, merciful. And Father, we love you this morning because you first loved us. And Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to come and worship you together. Lord, to lift up our voices and our hearts in praise and adoration and song. And I thank you this morning. Just thank you for being who you are in our lives. Thank you for answered prayer. Lord, we bless this time this morning in your name. And we pray that you'd use this time for your honor and for your glory and for the fulfillment of your kingdom, that the advancement of the gospel might go forth, that people may come to know you as Lord and Savior. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is 
only I could go back and change some things, set things straight. I wish I had a do-over. I've made choices. I've lost out. I've wished a thousand times I could go back and try again. It's hard not to imagine what might have been. If I had just stopped to think. If I had just done as I was told. If I hadn't thought I knew it all. Why didn't I just take a few deep breaths? Took one second to listen. Maybe my life would be better. Maybe there wouldn't be such a high price to pay. Things would be different now. I wouldn't have so many regrets. But is everything lost? Can I just get a do-over? Is there a way back to new beginnings? Because regret can mean a new beginning. When it's given to the one who produces a repentance. A repentance that delivers me from my grief. The one who takes my mistakes. And somehow redeems me through them. Who tells me I'm not the sum total of all my regrets? He tells me not to look back. Because there's nothing there to see. I am not my mistakes. He is faithful and just to forgive me. I just have to ask him. And then I can look straight forward. Forget what is behind me. And strain towards what is ahead. And walk away with all regrets erased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every day I'm given a clean slate. A clean slate? I get a clean slate. Amen. The question we have before us today is, does God forgive? Does God forgive sin? Does God forgive the most heinous, cruel sin imaginable? That's what David has committed. If you'll stand with me, turn to Psalm 51. Of course, this is a song. It's a song of repentance. It's to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Notice what David says in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Notice the uh, pronouns here. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make, make me to know wisdom. Purge me, with, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And I want to say right there, David is not talking about how we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit now. He's talking about God's anointing on his life. And what David is saying is this, are you going to allow me to continue to be the king? You sovereignly called me to be the king. You pulled me from the, from the pasture, tending sheep. Are you going to take that from me? Please don't do that. Then he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I'll say this. If you're living in unconfessed sin, I invite you to confess that sin to the Lord. You don't have to confess it to me or anybody else, right? 
But the joy of your salvation will never return until you do that. You'll never have joy in your heart. Look at the word. Look at what David says. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't just say return it. He says just restore me and uphold me by your generous spirit. Notice what happens when we do this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire a sacrifice or else I would give it. And you do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you do not despise. You can't pay God enough to get forgiven. You can't memorize enough Bible verses. You can't come to church enough to try to outdo what you've done. But you can confess with your mouth and receive forgiveness. Do good in your good pleasure. Design, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall please with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and with whole offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you in prayer, Lord, as we have these last several sermons on David's life, Father, this invitation is very important for our relationship with you. Father, if there's a person that's lost today, they will confess the same prayer that David did. If we're saved today, and Lord, we're living in unconfessed sin, we'll confess the same prayer that David did. Father, this is a song of repentance. Every blessing as a Christian comes through the funnel of repentance. Father, this is not a bad word, it's a good word. David's life was dramatically changed after his confrontation with Nathan. And I pray that our lives will be dramatically changed after our confrontation with your word and your Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you and praise you for the things that you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray. And once again, all of God's people say together, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One, one pastor said this, If you had one hour to live and you could have only one song going through your mind for your comfort and encouragement, what would it be? If you could only have one song going through your mind. And he, he makes note of this. He, read, he uh, really quoted a couple of scholars who said that the first century and second century Christians would oftentimes go into the, the stake or go into the cross or go into to be burned, they would start quoting and singing parts of Psalm 51 over and over and over again. Luther once claimed there's no other psalm more often sung or prayed in the church than Psalm 151. One lesser-known Protestant reformer says this, this psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book and contains instructions so large and doctrines so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development of the psalm. Spurgeon said this about the psalm, It is a matchless psalm, well suited for the individual as well as an assembly of the poor in spirit. Psalm 51 brings together the painful reality and depth of sin and the wonder of divine mercy. Why do we have this psalm? Well, if you've been here, you know. David... At the height of his power, at the height of his time under the blessing of God, he became infatuated with his neighbor. Went out on the rooftop and saw a beautiful woman bathing, and he, he could not keep his eyes off of her. And because of some issues in David's life before that worked its way out, but you got to understand, David is, has not had a midlife crisis. He's 50 years old and is being blessed by God. At a time when the kings go out to war, David stays behind. And he sees this lady, and the Hebrew word, it says he just looks at her. Can't take his eyes off of her. Then he sends messengers, and you know what they say? This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. What a warning. David says, I don't care. 
bring her. And then what happens in verse 4 of that chapter is, the Bible says they have a one-night stand, and David's life changes forever. The rest of that chapter we looked at where David tries to cover this great sin up. He could have repented there. He could have repented there and dealt with the consequences, but he would not, and Uriah the Hittite ends up dying. Then in chapter 12, what happens? God sends Nathan. And Nathan confronts David. See, at the end of chapter 11, the Bible says David thought he'd got away with it. But the Bible says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God sends almost nine months to a year later the prophet Nathan to admonish David. And that word admonish, it's a New Testament word which means to confront, to place in one's mind, to warn. Now listen to this. Admonition seeks to correct those who are damaging themselves and others by their wrong moral choices. Biblical admonition is a moral correction through verbal confrontation motivated by genuine love. And I've oftentimes said this, make sure you're Nathan if you go to somebody else. Ultimately, there are fewer greater signs of love, our love for someone, than our willingness to risk rejection and broken relationship because we confronted them for their own good. If admonishment is done in the right spirit with the right motive, using an appropriate method, then the person receiving the admonition will be better for it and will eventually thank us for it. That's how this psalm came about. If chapter 12 had not have happened, you wouldn't have chapter 51 of this great psalm. MacArthur says this, This is a song of repentance. This psalm bears the mark of deep guilt. And you could see that as we read it. This psalm bears the mark of penetrating, pervasive, almost debilitating remorse over sin. This is a psalm written out of pain, anxiety, fear, and reveals the essence of true confession. If I were to sum up what David was feeling, I might say it like this. Sin had made him dirty, and he wanted to be clean. Guilt had made him sick, and he wanted to be well. Disobedience had made him lonely, and he wanted to be reconciled. Rebellion had made him fearful, and he wanted to be pardoned. That's what comes out of Psalm 51, a man who feels dirty, sick, isolated, and afraid. All of these are the consequence, not just of his sin, but his continued unconfessed sin. David was the king, and he was held to a higher standard. Out of that, he pours forth this confession. A true confession, as we get from Psalm 51, will have three elements. A right view of sin, a right view of ourself, and a right view of God. Isn't that simple? If you're going to confess your sin and repent, you have to have a right view of sin. Most people don't. They don't, they don't even consider sin. Before God saved me, I could care less about sin. I'd feel guilty about getting caught, but not for the sin that I committed. David feels guilty for the sin that he has committed. He had a right view of sin. He also had a right view of himself. A lot of us don't. David did. Then he had a great view of God. When David prays this prayer and sings this song, the attributes of God, he brings out God is holy, God is powerful, and God is good. And if I need forgiveness and cleansing, I want a God that's holy, that's powerful, and listen, good. Aren't you thankful we have a good God? Aren't you thankful you have a good God? So let's look at the first thing here, a right view of sin. See your sin as God sees it. One, one uh, pastor said this, it is a lot easier to look at the sin in another person than it is to look at our own sin, isn't it? That's Alexander County in a nutshell. It's a lot easier for me to point out your sin than it is to look at my own sin. It's clear from this psalm that David understands his sin for what it is. He brings out three aspects of all our sins. Notice the first thing. David is saying this in verse 4. My sin deserves judgment. Notice what he says. Against you and you only have I sinned. Every sin you commit. Now David hurt a lot of people. He hurt a lot of people, killed a man. But ultimately his sin, notice, 
I have sinned, and against you and your only God, my sin first and foremost is against you, and done this evil in your sight. And then he says this, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. What? Listen to what David's saying. What David is saying is this, if you judge me for this sin, which would mean death and hell, if I am to be forever separated from you, if this is a damning sin, if this is permanently the end for us, then God, you're blameless. It's not your fault, it's my fault. I deserve judgment. This is a confession of his own guilt, and he deserves judgment. He understands that. Remember in chapter 11, we talked about this. He broke six of the Ten Commandments literally in two days or three days. And David understands that. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? David is feeling the weight of judgment. Judgment from God. Because he's broken his law. It is what every guilty person at the courthouse knows. I deserve this. Now, a person at the courthouse who is guilty in their own heart, and they know it, they may say they're not guilty, but in, on the inside they know they're guilty. And they know whatever the judge says they deserve, if not more. True confession begins with a recognition, recognition that we deserve judgment, even as a believer. We deserve discipline. And what David is saying is this, I recognize my sin deserves judgment. And then the second thing David recognizes is this, I need mercy. David is not appealing to justice. He don't want that. He's appealing to the mercy of God. Have mercy upon me, O God. Throw yourself at the mercy of the king. I've oftentimes heard lawyers tell clients, hey, throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. Good luck with that. Throw yourself at the mercy of the king. He's pleading for compassion. The word mercy comes from the Old Testament word for mercy and grace. I can plead for nothing else. I can only ask for mercy. Aren't you thankful that God is a God of mercy? When, when Moses asked to see the goodness of the Lord, the Lord said this, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children and the third and fourth generation. Psalm sixty-two, twelve says, Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures forever. Mercy means this, God is not going to give me what I deserve. His mercies are new every morning. David is saying this, my sin deserves judgment. I need mercy because, number three, he says this, I am guilty. When is the last time you've been that honest with anybody? I'm guilty. We are an excuse-making generation. David takes full responsibility. He knows he deserves judgment. He knows he needs mercy. He is genuinely guilty. Notice what he says. My sin, my transgressions, my iniquity, my, my, my. He doesn't blame his bad upbringing. He doesn't blame his friends. He doesn't blame his spouse. He doesn't blame anybody else. This thought came to mind. If you don't admit this to God, then don't pray to God because He knows everything. You can lie to your spouse, your kids, you can lie to your church, your friends, co-workers, and yourself. Oftentimes people do. But you cannot lie to God. God knows. And He does not blame God. You know what Adam did? He said, the woman you gave me. You know what the woman did? That serpent deceived me. He doesn't blame them. He doesn't even blame the devil. He takes responsibility for himself. 
So if you're going to have a truly repentant heart, you must understand what sin is. And it deserves judgment. You can only appeal to mercy, and you have to admit that you're guilty. If you can't do those three things, don't even pray. You're just wasting your time. You'll never receive cleansing like David did. And not only that, you have to have a right view of who you are. Notice, the point number two, understand who you are. Notice the verse on the screen, verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that she had an adulterous affair. What David is saying is this, From the moment I was born, I was born a sinner. Guess what sinners do? They sin. Don't be surprised when the world acts like it does, because the world is full of sinners. Sin. MacArthur says, what a statement. He doesn't mean he was an illegitimate child. He wasn't. He doesn't mean he was born out of some adulterous affair. He wasn't. What he means is that from conception, he was a sinner. This is not David saying, oops, something went wrong here. I'm basically a good person. This is David saying, in all honesty, this is really who I am. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And in the flesh, there is no good thing. Apart from redeeming grace, you're capable of anything because you are a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of God's grace. Which means this, we're not all God's children. We're not. You must be born again. We are not all God's children. Only born again Christians are. doesn't matter what part of the planet you're on. You're a sinner by nature and by birth. You need Jesus. What David is saying is this, I am a sinner by nature. Question, let me ask you this question. Okay, and I've asked you this before, but let's say there's a line. Hopefully not in the church, right? And you place before that line a steak and a bell of hay. Which one will it choose? Steak. How many times? How many days? Till he what? Why? Because that's his nature. What David is saying is this. I do the things I do sometimes. He's not blaming nobody. I'm a sinner by nature. Which means this. You need a Savior. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do it. Paul said this to the church at Ephesus who were born again out of, out of wickedness. Paul says, and you, church, he made alive. Think about that. You, he made alive. What's the opposite of being alive? Being dead, right? He says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. He says, you were born in sin, and you've lived in sin up to this moment, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's who we were. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the, just as the, just as the others. Excuse me. You are by nature a child of wrath. You cannot change your nature. You can morally reform. You can do all those things. You can start coming to church. You can do those things. You can stop doing certain things. You can stop com committing certain sins on your own. You're still a sinner. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Only God can change your nature. You must be born again. Nicodemus in John 3 was a very good moral man. Better than any of us. Tithed almost everything that he had. Memorized the Bible. Was a good, decent man. And he come before Jesus, and the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is this, you must be born again. You're lost. Why? Because he was a sinner by nature. 
When, when the person came to Jesus and called him good master, he said, there's nobody good but one. All have sinned and fallen short. What David is acknowledging here is a great, uh, great theological truth that we all are born in sin. We all need Jesus. So true repentance and confession understands what sin is and understands what we are, but finally and thankfully, praise the Lord, it understands who God is. The world has a low view of a holy God. The church, most churches, have a low view of a holy God. Listen, Tozer said this, the most important thing about you and about your church is what comes to your mind when you think of God. Why? Because you'll become like the God you serve. You'll become like the God you serve. When times get hard, you're going to turn to that God. When you sin, you'll turn to that God. If he doesn't care, he doesn't care. If your God's an old grandpa that sits in a rocking chair that just pats you on the head all the time, that's your God. David's God was not that God. David's God was the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. He's the God who sits on the throne. He's the one true God. And that God is, David is saying, is holy. Notice verse 6. The Bible makes this statement. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you'll make me to know wisdom. What David is saying is this. He, he, he looks to the holiness of God. Think about the holiness of God. Holiness is the attribute that describes all of God's other attributes. His love is holy. His sovereignty is holy. His mercy, which we talked about, is holy. His grace is holy. His omnipotence is holy. His wrath is holy. His justice is holy. His goodness is holy. That word comes from a Hebrew word which means to cut, to cut in two, because it means to separate. It means God is a cut above everything. He is separate from us. There's no comparison to God. The Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness in the Psalms and the majesty of God's holiness in Exodus and the incomparability of God's holiness in Isaiah. Listen to what Tozer said. He is pure, sinless, faultless, no hint of moral imperfection. He is perfect. And in all of his ways are perfect. His will is perfect. All he can do is morally holy and perfect. He has never erred in the slightest. He has never miscalculated. He has never misjudged or made a mistake. He has never done you wrong. He is perfect because he is morally holy. He absolutely hates sin and he loves righteousness. He is perfect in his words, ways, will, and his work. And David appeals to that holy God and he compares himself to the Lord. See, that's your standard. Your standard's not your neighbor or your coworker. I used to think this when I was a lost teenager. Well, I'm better than Jim Bob, and he goes to this Baptist church. That was my thinking because I was lost. My standard is a holy God, and I fall way short, right? That's why when the lost stand before God, the books will be opened on a great... They'll stand before a great white throne, a holy throne. And the Bible says on that day, there'll be no talking. You go to court up here on Monday, there'll be a lot of talking. You stand before God one day as a lost sinner, there'll be no talking, the Bible says, because in Romans it says every mouth is shut before this God. David appeals to the holiness of God, and he says this, you desire truth here. Here. That nature part of you, that this is the real part of you. See, when you leave this church, and you start work on Monday through Friday or Saturday, that's the real you. That's what David says, I need cleansing here, God. And the hidden part, you make me to know wisdom. God, you changed me here. You can't do that, friend. You can't do it. There's nothing on this planet that can change that but the Lord. And David is appealing to the holiness of God. 
True confession understands that it is really me saying, I want to be clean all the way down on the inside. What David is saying is this, just don't stop me at the point of adultery. Stop me long before that. Stop me before I lust. That's an honest confession, is it not? God, adultery is just a part of who I was. Stop me from lusting. I'm, I'm a wicked man, Lord. Can you please do that for me? Then, then notice the second thing he appeals to. He, what he's saying is this, God is powerful. Now look, only a powerful God can do this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You can't do that for yourself. You can't. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough charitable works. You can't go on enough mission trips. You can't do it. God is, David is saying this in his confession. God, only you are powerful enough and holy enough to do this. Only you can do this. Does God have all power? Can God do anything? That's called his omnipotence. He has the, Tozer said, he has the ability and the power to do anything. Omni means all. Potent means powerful. The power is his, his power is exercised effortlessly. God's power is not limited or hindered by anything. God is not limited by anything ever. He never exhausts his power, never runs to the limit of his power. He has 100% power at all times. There is no personal or spiritual being that can hinder or limit God one-tenth of a second in any way. What God wills, he does. It's that simple because he has all power. And David appeals to that God for forgiveness. The all-powerful one. Listen, nothing can cleanse you. Look at the word hyssop. Scholars say it was a shrub used to apply blood and water in a purification ceremony. And he just borrows that picture. Just purify me ceremonially, he's saying. Wash me, you do it. Wash me. Do it, oh God, because if you do it, it'll be done. It'll be thorough. You, can, you have the power. You have the power to do it. You can remove my transgressions. You can wash me as though my sins are as scarlet. You can make them white as wool. Why would you go anywhere else than the Lord? He is a good, gracious, compassionate God. He is a holy God. He's a powerful God. And this is what excites me the most. He is a good God. Notice what David says, make me hear joy and gladness. Some people have such a bad view of who God is. He's not a principal. No offense to principals, I only had good ones. Anybody ever enjoy going to the principal's office? I didn't, because when I went, it was always bad. But God's good. God says, come to me. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus said, come. Look, this is simple, come. If you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He knows all about you, and he says, Come. Who else? What other God does that? None. Read, read, I've, I've studied religion half my life. The Muslim God doesn't do it. The Mormon God doesn't do it. Buddha can't do it. Nobody says come and I'll forgive and I'll cleanse. It's unique to Christianity. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy. Why? Because he is good. I love what one scholar said this about the goodness of God. He says, by nature, God longs to bring joy and blessing to his creatures. Notice, make me to hear joy and gladness. You're good. Make me, please. God is spontaneously good and overflows with generosity, loving kindness, mercy, grace, and benevolence. Theologians tell us God's goodness is His benevolence to His creation, His kindness exhibited toward all that He has made. God is a, goodness is essential to God. Without it, He's not God. God's goodness is a bedrock truth of Scripture. Bible, the Bible repeatedly talks about His goodness. Psalm 33 says he loves justice and righteousness. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 34 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
David wrote this, Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Psalm 100 says, Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. Psalm 143 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of unrightness. Listen. He is essentially, infinitely, perfectly, immutably, which it can't change, and solely good in himself. He is the author of all good and kindness. All the divine persons of the Godhead are good. The Father's good. He has good designs toward his people and has provided good things for them. He's made good promises to them and bestows good on them. The Son is good. He died for you and rose from the dead. And the Spirit's good. He's here right now, longing to bless your life. And then notice uh, verse 8 on the screen. Or verse 8 is on the screen. I'm sorry. Notice the next verse on the screen. This is what David says will happen, Lord, if you do it. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. If you needed counseling, I'd go to David if you have this issue. He says, then, then sinners will be converted to you. See, David wants restoration. He wants reconciliation. God has broken his bones, metaphorically speaking, crushed him. He's now broken. and He has a broken and a contrite heart. And he wants restoration. And he also says, God, this is my ministry. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. David sang before chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, but he never sang like this from the, the rest of his life. He never sang like this. Because he understood the goodness of the Lord. I will teach, I will tell others about it. wonder how many men, after chapter 12, David wondered, warned about the horrors of sin. He probably helped a lot of people. But I wonder how many he taught about the goodness and grace of an all-forgiving God. Boy, he had, a, he had something to tell. He says, I will sing. God put a new song on his lips. When the, when the psalmist talks about God give us a new song, what it means is this song means something different for me now. This song means something different for me now. I mumbled amazing grace for years in church, and then God saved me. What a song. I've sung It Is Well With My Soul hundreds of times in this church, and then we'd sing it at a funeral. Oh, a godly saint, what a song. Isn't it amazing what a song can do to you? David got a new song. He says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. So here's the thing. Do you believe what I'm preaching today? If so, then this is your time to repent. I'm going to ask for musicians to come in the quietness of this moment. Show that last slide, guys. Repentance means this. This is what repentance means. Notice the word confess. I confess to God my sin. Which means this. You verbalize to God in your heart here. We don't want to hear it out loud. Your sin. You know what it is. You tell him. God, this is my sin. You admit that it's wrong. You confess that you're guilty. You ask for forgiveness. Then you stop. Lord, I make a commitment today to stop. Babe, if you'll play softly, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just in the quietness of this moment. In the quietness of this moment. You want revival? You don't need to pay a preacher to come here and preach four messages. You can have revival today by confessing your sin to the Lord right now. Admit to God that it's wrong. Confess that you're guilty. Then ask Him to 
forgive you. And then say to the Lord, God, by your grace today, from this moment on, I'm stopping this sin today. David didn't have a problem with adultery after chapter 11. He didn't murder anybody else's husbands after chapter 11. Because he confessed his sin, he admitted that he was guilty, he forsook it. That's called repentance. If you're here today and you never placed your faith and trust in Christ today, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're guilty and ask the Lord to save you. Watching online, ask the Lord to save you. You don't need a preacher to there with you. God knows your heart. A broken and a contrite heart, He will not turn away. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. We want to thank you for your word. Lord, this is a great song. Lord, repentance is not a bad word, it's a good word because you're holy. Father, you're just. You're powerful. Father, you're good. And we're so thankful that we have a good God we can go to who loves to forgive, who longs to show mercy and compassion. Father, your mercy endures forever. We're so thankful for that. They're singing in heaven today about your mercy because we've we've received it. Father, if there's anyone here today who's a born-again Christian who needs mercy, Lord, I pray that they would receive it this morning. If they need forgiveness and cleansing, Lord, I pray that they would receive it this morning. Lord, if anyone here needs salvation, I pray that through the Holy Spirit they would receive it this morning and we'll thank you and praise you for what you alone can do. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people say together, amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to... We want to thank you for taking time to join us online today. Our hope and prayer is that Jesus is glorified and that you are challenged and encouraged through worship and God's Word. Today, if you made a decision to place your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you still want to know more about what it really means to follow Jesus, please feel free to contact us through the week. We would love to be able to share with you more about the hope that is only found in Christ. If you're not already a regular part of another church family, we invite you to join us here on campus each week for Sunday school and worship 